This episode is sponsored by Linode. Linode is offering listeners of this podcast a $20 credit, which is good for four free months at their lowest plan. Their plans start at one gigabyte of RAM for $5 a month. You can get your servers in any of their 10 data centers, and their high memory plans start at 16 gigabytes. Get a server running in under a minute. They do hourly billing with a monthly cap on all plans and add-on services like backups, node balancers, long view, etc. VMs for full control, running Docker containers, encrypted disks, VPNs, etc. You can run a private Git server. They provide native SSD storage, 200 gigabit network, and Intel E5 processors. They have 24-7 friendly support, even on holidays, and a seven-day money-back guaranteed. So go check them out at linode.com slash adventures in Angular. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another Adventures in Angular show. This week on our panel, we have Alyssa Nichol. <laughs> Sorry, I was trying to figure out if I was unmuted or not, so I just kind of gave back my hello. That was weird. <laughs> that was awesome. Hey, <laughs> Joe Eames. Hey, everybody. John Papa. Dracaris. Ward Bell. Oh, I'm giggling. Oh, it's Ward. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv, and uh, all the background noise, that's me. I'm sorry. I'm in Oakland at a conference, so, uh, yeah, dialing in for that. We have a special guest this week, and that's Alex Eagle. Alex, do you want to say hi? Hello. Shall I, shall I give an intro? Yeah. Do you want to just let people know who you are, why you're famous? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess I'm like a minor internet celebrity in the corner of the internet where uh, people build large Angular apps. Um, so I work on the Angular core team. I've been on the team for about three years, spent most of that time doing developer tooling, so making the Angular compiler work with our internal build system um, and TypeScript and making Angular work in TypeScript, um, all that stuff down in the plumbing. And for the last year, I've been working on making that internal tool chain converged with what everybody externally is using. Yeah, I think when I talked to Brad about it, he's, I, I think I used the words basil and new in the same sentence, and he corrected me on that. So uh, do, do you want to just talk about, yeah, how Google does it and what that means for us going forward with Angular? Sure. So um, I started at Google at the end of 2008, and around that time, it was just at the tail end of any other build system existing at Google. And so we've been using basil for about 10 years. Um, Almost every piece of software at Google is uh, built with Bazel. Um The only things that are the exception is stuff that you've seen in open source, like Chromium and Android. They usually have their own separate code repository, too. Um, but all the rest of the software, all the services that you use and all the, all the Google products that are online um, are in a single mono repository. They all share code, the front ends, the back ends, everything is together, and it's all built by this one build system. So This is every um, piece of code ever written at Google? Right. So, so wait a minute, if they make a change in Gmail or something like that, they have to recompile absolutely everything everywhere? It's a benefit. Because, Ward, if they make a change in Gmail, they might want to know what they broke, right? So we're doing continuous integration for real, where every change is integrated against all the rest of the software. So if you think about it, you maintain Whoa. a library, and you have li users of your library across the company, you don't want to find out in two months when they try to upgrade that you broke them with a change like in your last release, you want to find out when you land that change. So actually, all of our library code, for the most part, is released on commit. Talk about a monorepo. So this is the monorepo. Yeah, this yeah. is the monorepo on crack. Like, monorepos, I think, are a good idea for everybody. Angular itself has a monorepo, but Google's is the largest in the world that we know of. And uh, there's some really cool talks. Um, check out the At Scale conference where um, there's, a, there's a talk about our monorepo there. 
Challenge accepted. Yeah, it's cool. I'm going to uh, go out and write a bot that's going to write a bigger monorepo. So, yeah, so, like, if you do a build, if you do a clean build at Google, um, in theory, you start off compiling C++ compiler. Then you compile, uh, then, then we compile Node.js. Then Node.js compiles the Angular compiler. Then the Angular compiler compiles Angular core and common and the other packages that have directives in them. And now we're ready to run NGC on the first piece of user code. So that sounds really painful and slow, but in fact, our users have like a two-second turnaround time. And that's what's amazing and cool. And even if you don't want your monorepo to contain the sources for your C++ compiler, you still end up having a lot of sources that your company does maintain, and it's really useful to be able to build them all at head. Um, but just to be clear, Bazel works. Uh, so Bazel is the build tool we use, and we it grew up alongside of our monorepo. Um, but the the product that we've externalized um, works pretty well with multi-repos as well. So for example, yesterday, um, I needed to hook up part of Angular's um, optimization pipeline, which is in a repo called the Angular Dev Kit. We have this this component called Build Optimizer that's just part of the tool chain that we use when we're minifying apps. Um, in order to use that from the Angular repository, it's still a single Bazel build, and I just point one repository at the other one, and now when I do the build, it crosses over the repository boundary, and I'm building the Angular Dev Kit, and then I'm building Angular all as part of the same build command. So, so that would mean if somebody... Like there's two schools of thought. There's a school, well, there's plenty of schools, but there are people who like monorepos, and then there are people who like micro repos, repos, and you could arrange um, to work uh, in both contexts. Is that correct? Basil will work in both contexts. I think if you have many repos, you do have a lot of challenges around continuous integration. If I land a change, if I, if I propose a change, if I have a PR, let's say, in one repo, how do I make sure that doesn't break the repo? I think there are probably people out there because it's a, you know, people have that necessity. Um, but in multi-repo setups I've seen, you end up with a bad continuous integration. Integration is really more like monthly. You try your best to throw together software from all the repos. Um, I've heard that described as a benefit because from a software architect's point of view, it means that you have this really good decoupling between different you know, if you're talking microservices, it means each of your services ought to be able to operate. But I think as, as software engineers, we all know that when we do go to integrate the software, we discover that, you know, the consumer was making some kind of assumption about the the service that wasn't encoded in the service description before you consume, whether or not you think it's architecturally sound. Yeah. Um, well, it, um, uh, that's the repo discussion. But from a from you know if, if this is my tool chain I get to it, your point is that I can do it if I, if I build it if I choose right. to do yeah. so. Point one is that it I recommend mono repos. Um, I think that's a great thing to investigate. But the rest of this conversation we can you like can you can use a mono repo or you can stick with what you have. Either way we should be able to use uh, use Angular's build tool chain. Now another thing you mentioned in passing was that you, you mean you were building some things in Java. You're building some things in C++. You're building something TypeScript. So it's not pegged to any one environment? Correct. It's a multi-language build system. So, you know, for one thing, if you want then your back-end developers to be able to, to cross over, then it's helpful to have the same build tool. If you want your back-end and front-end to actually compile against the same artifacts, like you have some interface definition for the JSON schema that is shipping from the back-end, it's really good to have the build system understand both. Um, but it also means that the tools that you use do not have to all be written in JavaScript. So I think what we've seen in the JavaScript ecosystem is, um, oh, that, that tool is, if the, any tool that comes from outside the JavaScript ecosystem, we assume is going to be very hard to integrate. 
And so even though in, in the world of software development, we've had a lot of great tools over many years, um, the JavaScript ecosystem has typically not adopted any of those tools because it's hard to build it into their tool chain. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's an advantage. For example, the, the dev server that we use um, is written in Go. It's way fast. It allows us to do things that are a little bit closer to the metal. Um, I think it's more appropriate for a dev server. Um, a, a lot of, a lot of, you can write a lot of great stuff in Go. Why should that not be, why should you not be able to write some of the tools in Go and some of the tools in JavaScript and then you can all interoperate? Cool. So, so that's how you roll internally. Um, the project you've been working on is making this available to us outside. And, and I'll tell you, while I'm doing that, uh, asking that question, I'll give it, one of the contexts when I first heard about this is like, oh, great. Out here in the world, we don't have enough tool chain. We need more, especially a proprietary one, a gigantic company that does things and has all these gazillion engineers, top flight engineers, and the rest of us poor slobs are out here just trying to make do. So um, uh, how are you approaching us to make us feel like um, this is going to be a good idea? I mean, how are you sort of tackling this whole problem? <laughs> uh, we're talking about whether Google has the best engineers in the world. I'm not sure that that's true. So, we've, so we're, we're talking about this, this build system that we use called Bazel. I want to make the point um, at Facebook and Twitter, they developed a clone called, called um, Pants and uh, uh, respectively, um, because they also have engineers. They're like, hey, do you know what we build system that has all these properties? And a lot of them came from Google, so they sort of knew what the magic recipe was. Um, and it's basically... Um, let me, let me try and just give like the one minute description of why Bazel is so great. So like make in that you don't tell the build system what to do. Instead, you give it a bunch of inference rules. So you say, hey, if you need to make B, you can make it with A and do this thing to it. And if you need to make C, you can make that from B if you do this thing to it. And so you just give a bunch of transforms that are possible to go from some set of inputs to some set of outputs. And now the user at the end says, hey, I want to build Z. And then the system says, oh, well, let's see. So I know that in order to do that, I need to take like Y and W and X and put those together. But hey, in order to get Y, I have to do this thing. And so it builds this chain of actions that it has to perform. But then the next step is it says, okay, which of these actions is different from last time? So it looks at the inputs to each one and it says, hey, W, X, and Y are all the same as last time. So I don't need to redo this action. Z is already up to date. Here you go. Take zero seconds. So um, one thing that's really cool about this build system is that everything is incremental. It only rebuilds the stuff that is dirty with respect to the last time it did a build. And um, it doesn't even necessarily have to be that you locally did a build before so that you have W, X, Y, and Z all up to date. There, You could also get them for a remote cache. So as long as all of these actions um, conform to a couple of guarantees that we can talk about, it means that they can all be performed on some remote machine. So you can have like 100 machines in the cloud do your build, and you can pull cache hits from some other machine. So assuming that your CI is up to date, it just built master a few minutes ago. So most of your local build should actually be a cache hit. So even though we have this mono repo and we're building a lot of stuff from source, we don't actually redo those builds very often unless something changed. But it does mean that when we, if you do change something, you don't need to go say, hey, I changed it, and then I need to distribute the package to our internal artifacts. Appears to me, although it appears as JavaScript and it was originally offered as TypeScript, so if I needed to debug it, now, the source maps are messed up. You don't have any of that. You just make a change, and the change is always live in everywhere that you use that code. 
So just to recap just a tiny bit, whenever you're talking like X, Y, and Z, what you're really talking about is like projects, like, you know, Angular or Material or stuff, stuff like that, right? So the, it's kind of up to you how granular the graph is. Sure. But actually, if when I say W, X, Y, and Z, what I'm actually thinking is like Material Button or Angular Core. So okay. one of those things is really a compilation. And right. in order to make the build system perform really well, we don't want to like compile all of Material as one big thing. Partly because it's slow, it consumes a lot of memory, it doesn't scale well if material grows. So what we want is the scaling property that no matter how big your enterprise is, your builds are always two seconds. And so that means that you want some, you want your, your, the size of each compilation unit to be relatively fixed over time and that the growth should be in the number of compilation units and not the size of the typical compilation unit. So, um, we actually, like, yeah, those are, you can think of them as separate packages, but we do our packages very fine grained. So you can think of every directory in your app as a different package. Mm -hmm. okay. Is that what is that what we should be doing? There is, uh, would we? Are you recommending that we uh, so, build at that degree of granularity, or even at the yeah. point? I mean, so there's yeah, a question like, like, what's appropriate for different use cases? I wouldn't say that like a Hello World Angular user has to have their app split up into a different package per directory because they have a total of like, you know, three thousand lines of code. It's, they're not reaching any sort of scaling threshold where they where that's appropriate. Um, if it that's a big that's a big idea. hello world, Alex. Now I know yeah. John well, recommends you template in one part. module and your component class in another. That's John. He likes to split these things. <laughs> okay, up. so maybe three hundred lines. But you see, my, you see my point. So like, yeah. at that scaling factor, you're perfectly fine with like you know a very simple toolchain that just does the uh, naive thing that every time you run the toolchain, it reperforms all of the work and it does. It does each all the like it does a compilation like it runs the TypeScript compiler or the Angular compiler against the world, right? And if you do a compilation in Angular CLI, you're actually compiling not just your app, you're also compiling the Angular libraries and any libraries you depend on because they don't because they don't ship with the generated code, right? So the Angular compiler assumes that you use your local version of the compiler to compile the world, including the libraries you depend on. Mm -hmm. um, under Bazel, we don't do it that way because no global step, no global compilation no global static analysis can scale when your project gets really big. And so what we're interested in doing is like maybe one day the, like the everybody hello world use case will use these tools. Um, but the most important thing for me right now is the big enterprises who are having scaling problems, um, I think are the first place that they, that we want to adopt this tool chain. Okay. So, so that's, first that's where I'm getting today. First off, then what we're not talking about here is I'm at a, I'm a, I'm a dev at a small company. I'm on a team of four, my company, you know, or even 10, right? And we build primarily one or a small handful of projects. Then now we're not talking about, hey, I should be looking at, at Bazel, right? Uh, probably not. Like there are maybe a couple other cases where it's useful. Like if you're developing a front end and a back end and you want to build them together or if you're planning for future scale. Um, but yeah, I agree. Those, that developers is, I, they don't need to look at this right now. Right. But I'm at Regents Healthcare. We've got several hundred developers. We're building dozens and dozens of projects, and we've been experiencing a little bit of difficulty with our builds and that we're trying to keep everything either monorepo or we have some a, a few of those, and the builds are grinding to a halt as we try to check dependencies as we change things. Now is the time that... Well, how fast is your, is your development turnaround on that? Yeah. Um, I'm making up a story here, so <laughs> you tell me where okay. what the thresholds are and what that matters to the people that are listening. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's interesting to me to see some real-world numbers, too. I've been asking that from early adopters. Um, it seems like there's a wide spectrum of how long builds take. 
Um, and you know, there's, there's another aspect to it, which is production build versus development build. If you're going to run optimizers for production that, um, that are by nature a global program analysis, like, um, you know, tree shaking, you need to say, Oh, can I remove this function? Well, it depends. Is it used anywhere? Um, and those kind of optimizers are too slow to work in a dev mode. Um, right. at scale. so, right. um, what I'm talking about when I say two seconds, this is the, this is our objective. Like you should expect anytime you make any source change, or at least on, on the median, right? There's some distribution of times, but at the 50th percentile, we should take two seconds from when you change something to seeing that live in your app in the browser, including fetching the source of the browser and like parse eval time in the browser and module loading time in the browser, um, all the way up to your app starts running. So gotcha. we're talking two seconds. That's, that's like, that's the thing to take home. Okay. Well, that includes, of course, Angular ahead of time compiler. Like that's, it includes all of the tool chain except for the optimizers. Yeah, well, one other thing that I really like about some of this is um, that if I go and work on, like, the authentication piece, then the rest of my app that doesn't really tie into that much, I don't have to go do all that work again and wait for it to compile. And it sounded like uh, it handled a lot of the stuff that, um, you know, hasn't changed in the current set of changes, and it just recompiles everything else. Did I misunderstand that? Yeah, that's correct. You can think of it kind of like change detection in Angular. Like we go back and we say which of the things that the build has to do are dirty, and we just reperform those. So like this TypeScript compile is dirty because one of its inputs is a DTS file that came from another library, and since that changed, we might have to retype check this library. But now the outputs from this guy are the same as last time, so then we don't have to retype check anything down the chain, for example. Yeah, that just makes a ton of sense to me. It's like, hey, you know, we're just going to do the work that we know we need to do. And yeah, make sure that everything is functioning as expected. So if you guys don't mind, I can propose a next thing to talk about since I've given this pitch a couple of times, which is what does the configuration look like? I definitely want to hear that. But, um, but I think we're circling around something that's really important, which is um, how do I know when, and we haven't talked about the Angular enclosure part of it, but the Basil, when do I know that Basil is good for me? Uh, if your development turnaround time is slower than you need it to be, so it kind of depends on your tolerance. But I mean, for me, if it took more than 20 seconds to make a change and see it in the browser, I'll get distracted and go look at Twitter or something. So that's, that's the hard cutoff. Like as soon as you get distracted and you can't stay in the zone working, then you need to improve your built state. Couldn't yeah. you also just decide to do shock callers for your devs to fix that issue? I haven't seen that used in an enterprise <laughs> setting, uh, but it sounds like an interesting approach. Enterprise <laughs> it just keeps you focused. So, uh, I think that's, a, that's a pretty good... Though, are you talking yeah. about in development or in production? This is development mode. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Does like you were saying, tree shaking different? and stuff takes forever. Sorry, Alyssa, what was your question? Oh, I was just curious if production is faster because of this build system. Uh, it's like it whenever years. Right. Okay. So like I've been working on the roll up and uglify rules for the last couple of weeks. And, you know, it doesn't have to rebuild the app. Like if you just finished in development mode, you've already run TypeScript and Angular compilers on everything. Like the only stuff that's left to run is roll up and uglify in that case. Um, and it's actually even smarter than that. Like there are times when like you change some uglify settings, you don't need to re roll up, right? Like the only effect when you change uglify settings is the uglify action itself and its inputs don't change. Um, so you do get some incrementality benefits in production. Okay. 
All right. So, so I, you know, that, that's, that's a metric that everybody understands. They understand their own productivity and they can say, wow, this, what I'm doing now is just, just sucks. It's not, it's not good for my, for me. It's not good for my team. Let me look at this Basil thing. So what am I for Basil thing? Uh, <laughs> sorry. I just, Bazell. Bazell. This, I like yeah, so, um, so what, what, you know, what am I in for here? I get, I guess the other part, that I, I think I, I articulated was my nervousness about taking on one more tool, even if it promises me. I mean, you, you got me interested, like, OK, I got to change the way things are going here. Maybe Basil could do it. Um, but my big fear is that I'm going to be going down a rabbit hole and that this thing is going to be a big problem. And, yeah. uh, you know, That's I'll spend all my life on build tools instead of building the app. Right. So, so, like, I mean, one answer to that is, like, the community switched from grunt to gulp largely at some point. Uh, and a lot of people switch from Gulp to Webpack. Every few years, you change build tools. I think that happens. Oh, man, I'm behind again? Uh, well, oh, you're still on Grunt? <laughs> you could use no, Jake. you're right, though. So I, I think, think those things just change. Take. Um, yeah, so like there's some, there's some amount of churn, and maybe Basil can be next in line. Um, obviously, another point there is that at some point when the Angular CLI, when, this, when, when ABC is far enough along that we think it can be the build system underneath Angular CLI, then you won't even know that it happened. Like, you may, do you remember when the Angular CLI switched from Broccoli to Webpack? Yep. Was it a big deal? Did it affect your project a lot? Uh, not that part. When it changed from to system from System JS, that affected me. Yeah. Okay. To the extent that you're exposed to the configuration, then yes, that's yep. changed. Exactly. But if the underlying uh, stuff changes, yeah, who cares? So yeah, Ward, you're not wrong. And in fact, it, the, maybe the other concern you should have with Basil is, oh, like Gulp and Grunt were constrained to this subset of my enterprise where I'm building a front end, and the back end people they have some other build tool they use. Uh, but when you when you look at Basil, it makes a lot more sense to adopt it across the whole stack. So now you have to like walk across the hall and say, hey, back end team, are you guys still using whatever Gradle or something? Like maybe we should both switch. Uh, so it's that's actually a big organizational thing to to, to tackle. Do I have to? Do I have to? In other words, if I can't get the other no. team to go, can I still make? I can still say, well, this is my corner of the universe, and at least I'm using Basil for this. Yes, you, of course you can. So you imagine that you have this incremental migration, and you say, okay, the first step is I'm just going to use Basil to build the, like, to run the TypeScript compiler on this library. Then I take the output from Basil, and I use like MGC from the command line. You could do that, and then you'll say, oh, but that means every time I'm rebuilding the Angular compiler, even if it doesn't change, and so you can. Over time, expand the scope of that basal, um, you know, the seed inside of your project, and say, okay, now this thing that I was, um, you know, I was taking basal outputs and operating with them outside of basal, and now I'll build something so that that out, that next step is done inside of basal as well. And we're doing that even on the Angular team. Like we started using basal just to build and test, and now we're expanding it to build our npm packages. Um, so we we get some benefit. You know, obviously you've paved the most uh, most frequently driven road first, and then uh, and then you expand as it makes sense for you. Okay, so now you got me interested. I can see why I want to do it, and I'm getting the feeling that it won't. You know, I don't have to boil the ocean in order to get into it. So, what it, what is my what's it going to be like for me? I mean, it may be rough now because you're still doing it, but but what's it look like today? And what do you think it's going to look like when you get where you want to be? And if I could interject before you answer, Alex, like today people are using tools. Let's say they're using Jenkins or Travis or something like that as a CI tool. But would they still use that with Basil, or like yes. wh what do they stop using and what do they start using? So Basil is a build tool, and Jenkins and Travis and Circle CI are CI tools. And CI 
has always been like, you just tell us what command to run and we run it, right? You would just, yeah. you would just change your circle or your Jenkins config and you say, Oh, don't run npm build or ng build dash dash prod run basil build source colon bundle or, you know, whatever the top level thing is. Um, so you can think yeah, of that's it always like, been unclear to me. It's like, you know, is Bazel going to be the whole CI process or just another build tool? Instead of running ng build or ng server, we run Bazel. It is, it is just a build tool. I would love to talk about okay. I've actually been Great. working with the Circle CI team um, to do some really cool stuff in the interaction between CI and the build tool. And there are a couple of, of pretty thin interactions that are useful. Um, in particular, you really want on CI to have this caching so that your CI itself is incremental. And you're not waiting 30 minutes every time you push a new commit to see whether it's red or green. That's super cool. And we have that working on Circle CI right now. Um, there's no reason you couldn't do that on other CI systems. Um, but uh, CI is a little bit relevant, but um, it's really on the periphery. It's really more like some techniques to, to make, make life even better. Cool. Thanks. So, so Ward says, okay, so what does it look like today and what will it look like? So what it looks like today is um, you need to do a small amount of configuration of Bazel. Um, I think even in the end state where the CLI, where, you know, where Angular CLI is running Bazel for you, you might still see some of that configuration. Um, it's not like the Webpack config. It's not like any of the configuration you see in JavaScript today, where every tool wants you to give it a JSON file. And that JSON file has lots of settings. And some of those settings are telling it where the inputs and outputs go. And some of those settings are telling it about other tools that need to run, like plugins or something. And some of those settings are options that you can turn on and off, like strictness or like aggressiveness of optimization. Um, and the configuration space is enormous and insane. And, you know, there are lots of jokes out there about, like, uh, I need somebody to come and help me configure my JavaScript tools. Um, and, you know, you can watch Igor Minar's talk from, I forget where it was earlier this year. And he's like, oh, did you know that almost everybody doesn't turn on this one setting? And so all their apps are much bigger than they need to be. Um, so that, that's kind of sad. On the other hand, you have Angular CLI where it gives you almost no configuration, but it also gives you no customization, right? So if you want to do something different, even a little bit different, you have to do ng-eject, and now you're responsible for all the configuration again. So what I've realized, especially recently as I'm building, as we're switching Angular over to Bazel, is that it's got this sweet middle spot where there's very little configuration, but you still customization. And the way it does that is, is that you have these primitives, I would call them, TS library is one. So TS library says, okay, my job is you can give me types and I produce JavaScript and DTS files out. And then you can have an ng module, which is the Angular compiler that depends on a TS library. So basically each one of these things is just kind of describing a chunk of your program. It's like, okay, this chunk is TypeScript sources. This chunk is SAS files. This chunk is something that I want to go into roll up bundle. And then you just take these, what they're called rules. This is the, like a plugin for Bazel is called a rule. You can take these things and just compose them together in whatever way you want. So as long as some rule produces a JS file, I can take this other like bun roll-up bundle rule and apply it to that. Um, and what's cool is not only do you not need to configure the inputs and output locations because that's obviously like Bazel controls the the you know the the, the layout of the output directory, um, but you don't even need to configure the tools that much. Um, and a good example is the TypeScript compiler. You don't need to tell it whether to produce ES5 or ES2015 output because that's actually controlled by some other rule downstream. If you're running the dev server, it will ask for the ES5 output from all the TypeScript rules above it in the graph. And if you're running a production bundler, it might ask for the ES2015 sources from all the things up the graph. So the rules actually configure each other, which is super cool. And it means that the user really is only responsible to say, 
here's a here's a here's a chunk of files and they go together as a as a unit and I describe that they are TypeScript code and here's their dependencies and I'm basically done. Um, so I think that the configuration is is a is a pretty is pretty nice. Um, that's what you're exposed to today. So it's it's kind of um, the syntax is technically like a Python subset. So you know if you're allergic to Python, it kind of hurts. Um, and maybe one day we're going to start. <laughs> We'll start looking soon at whether we can actually just have the CLI generate all that configuration for you. But like I said, there's not very much configuration. It's really more about how to split your app up into chunks. Do you envision me like going shopping for rules for different parts of my thing in the, sort of in the same way I do for NPM packages? Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's already an ecosystem of Bazel rules. Um, they don't all interoperate, which is um, partly my job to solve, uh, especially in the JavaScript space, because something like the TS library rule has multiple kinds of JavaScript flavors that it can produce, like ES5 and ES2015 or different module formats. Um, we need some way for these rules to, like, what's the API of one rule talking to another? In most of Bazel, the API is simple. It's just, I produce this kind of file, and you consume that kind of file, and so we can play together. Um, and uh, so I think this, this sort of the, ba the Bazel ecosystem as a whole, in which there are several different sets of rules for doing the same thing, uh, I think within the Angular ecosystem, what we're going to see is a lot of people writing specific rules to bring a tool that they like into the tool chain. And yeah, it'll be no problem for you to go shopping among those. Um, you know, we, we just need to have uh, some sort of compatibility test repo where we mix the things together and have a CI that says that it works. Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. See, that would be really advantageous to me as I'm thinking about it, because every time I look at a configuration file, like, I don't know how to, you know, if I adjust it over here, that blows up somebody else, and uh, or I don't even know what it is, and I don't know how to take advantage of something that Joe did, or something that Chuck did, or something that Melissa well, like did. That, uh, like that webpack and pig file. Every time yeah. I eject and look at that, if I do a class on it, it gets bigger. I think it grows by 50 lines every day I show it. And that's, that scares people, you know, it's too much. <laughs> right. right. And I just wanted to change one thing, you know, and where do I go to get that one thing? If I knew that, the, you know, if John calls me up and says, hey, man, you know, here's the better TS Live rule set. Um, all you got to do is just, you know, shop for it, put it here like I do in a package JSON or however you're going to do it, uh, Alex. Uh, yeah. And um, and it's going to compose. I can count on Basil composing it without my having to worry about if they exact too much, if they have to stomp on each other or, or, you know, doing all that stuff. Is that kind of the vision that it would go like yeah. that? Absolutely. That's like, that's, um, 
that's the composability model in Bazel. You have inputs and outputs, and as long as they match up, you can swap out the rule. This also, this is open source, so you can fork my rules and make some local changes if that's what you need to do. Um, even just the last couple of days, I was doing a, uh, trying to help somebody who had an issue with his Webpack rule. Never heard of this person. Oh, he wrote a Webpack rule that plugs into my TypeScript rules. Great. Um, and in fact, this is we you know we don't have time to get into it here, but if you start writing your own Bazel rules. Um, there's actually a really nice mechanism to do code sharing within them. So one example is that I have a rollup bundle rule that applies generally to JavaScript code. And then I made an ng rollup bundle rule that adds Angular's build optimizer and a couple other Angular specific things. And it's really only like 30 lines of code because it mostly is just like, okay, I do the same thing as rollup bundle, but I have these extra two inputs and I run this one extra action. Uh, okay, so, yeah. okay. You got my attention. Okay. Um, where are you? you? I saw you three. <laughs> Where are you going? I mean, like, where are we in the process of uh, getting the world to you know, make it safe for, for Basil, for Basel? Uh, so we're right on the edge of sort of an early action, uh, uh, sorry, early access. So I've got, I've, I've reached out to some early adopters and I've said, hey, try this stuff out. I also have uh, enthusiastic people on the internet. We're kind of, I would say we're heading into a beta period with it. We have what that means. But, but um, I would say uh, for Angular 6, we have committed that one of the options for building Angular libraries and, and distributing Angular libraries is going to be APC. By the way, we didn't cover all the acronyms. It stands for Angular Build Tools Convergence. Is the current, that's, that's the official acronym. ABTC. Uh, uh, <laughs> is one word in this formulation. Oh, okay. I was that I didn't know that in English language. Cool. Well, I, that's that's how I type it. I don't put a space. <laughs> Wait, well, it used to be Angular, Basil, and Closure, but you changed it to something else. Uh, yes. Or was it ever officially Angular, Basil, Basil, and Closure? Like it did used to stand for that. Um, oh, okay. is this Windows NT used to be? Nobody knew what NT stood for, and still don't. It's not new technology. Nope. <laughs> it might be like that. Uh, no, so I think part of the reason I renamed it is that um, it's really, it's, I want to make convergence, I want to make it clear that like we're not going to try and put Google's toolchain out there and make you switch. In a lot of cases, I'm going to take the external toolchain and bring it internal. Like the stuff that we have, it's not as good as external. Obviously, I want the convergence to be, we use the same thing as outside, and that thing is the best of both. Uh, the other reason I changed it is that user compiler um, does produce the best bundles, but it's super hard to use right now. I think for, for a lot of companies, they might be better off with Rollup and, and Simplify, or they might be better off with Webpack. Those options are all still in there. And so I don't want to make the project seem like we've only one bundling optimizer. Do we know what we get out of the box with Webpack today with Angular? Uh, I have not worked on Webpack rules yet. I have a couple of contributors who've written them, uh, and there's somebody out there who I don't know who's been working on one. Um, and to be clear, I don't know either. I know at one point they were talking about putting rollup into it and then the closure compiler. And I, I don't know where they landed. Do you remember that work? Yeah, there's a there's a branch of closure compiler called Webpack that was specifically trying to make that path better paved. Um, in the Angular CLI, though? I mean, that's what I'm saying. Is it in the Angular oh, CLI, which one is it using? Yeah, the CLI still uses Webpack. Um, I, I don't think there's... Uh, we, we use rollup only to build... Um, Angular's packages, right? So for libraries, we use Rollup, um, but for end-user applications, we use Webpack. At least today. Uh, I think, I don't I don't know exactly where this is going to head. I think since, since Bazel is a general purpose build tool, like I said, somebody could write a rule that does it a different way. 
it's a benchmark. Um, so we can, we can compare these things well. So one of the things we've built, um, as part of ABC is a development round trip benchmarking suite. Um, so we can keep track both over time and between different sets of rules or different approaches. We can keep track of, you know, am I hitting the two second turnaround time? Um, right. along with a few other metrics, like how much memory pressure is there on my machine? Like, can I still, will I be able to build my app if it's 10 times bigger or do I have to get all my developers a 64 gig box? Um, so I think measurement is important. And then, um, uh, you know, we have to let the, we have to let the community take it in a direction. Um, I'm going to support a particular flavor of this, which is whatever Google is using because that's what's converged, but, uh, it doesn't mean that you can't customize this tool chain. One of the things that you mentioned earlier that struck me, I'm thinking about an enterprise and, you know, and you were just talking about how big a box I'd have to, to have, but what if, what if I wanted to put some of this in the cloud, right? Because also then I'd get the benefit of the caching of something that, you know, if I'm building it and showing, uh, and we're all, you know, we all, we could all share the previously cached build or something and we go yeah. a lot faster, right? So oh, is yeah. there a plan for like, uh, uh, you know, a cloud-based version of this that would make life easier for me? Uh, that's a great question, Ward. It's almost like I fed it to you. But I didn't. I promise everybody. Um, so, so yeah, I was talking about caching uh, on the CI, but in fact, sure, you can like everybody's basal. You can configure it and say the cache is at this address. So, you want the cache to have low network latency because the cache is racing against what your local machine can do. And in most cases, you make a change to a file. You're doing an incremental build, and you really only have to kick off two compilers, and one of them uses the outputs from the other. So you can't get a lot of parallelism, and so you have plenty of cores locally. Um, and basically use all the cores on your machine. So if you have like a 12 core workstation, then you can parallelize out pretty, pretty wide in the middle of a big build. But, um, you still have two scenarios where that doesn't help. One is if you have enough cores to, to build saturated, like there are actions that could be performed now, but there's no core available to run them on. Or if you're doing an initial build and you've made a change somewhere, like if you did your packages, your package JSON and your dependencies have changed and now lots of stuff needs to be rebuilt, um, it's going to be slow because you don't have enough local resources. And so there's also a feature in Bazel, uh, which is remote execution. And we already have Google Cloud has a hosted um, build execution farm. And there's also an open source project that allows you to host your own. Maybe writing like a turnkey uh, remote execution service. Um, and yeah, it's exactly what you said. Like uh, every engineer at Google relies heavily on the fact that we have a, a cloud-hosted build farm to make our giant monorepo builds fast enough. Because I'll have like 6,000 actions to perform on a typical build. I think when you build Google Cloud Console, you have like hundreds of thousands of actions. So yeah, just use a couple thousand machines and it's not it's not that slow. Easy peasy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah just every problem is solved with a massive data center. <laughs> Tom Watson was right. We only need six computers. <laughs> every problem, including my bad back. Solved by a massive data center. <laughs> yeah, put that on a T-shirt. <laughs> so, what's, what what are you worried about here? Um, uh, you know, why isn't he here already? Or what's what you know what what keeps you up at night about about this project? Oh man, well you know now that we're now that it's starting to pick up an adoption, obviously uh, I'm worried that I won't be able to keep up. Um, uh, There's going to be, I think. Um, you know, this, this has, this, this could have hockey stick shape, especially if we start getting an ecosystem of people writing rules. Um, and right now it's me and one contractor, um, working on this thing and sort of owning the whole space. 
we didn't even talk about the parts of ABC that are outside of the build system, like linting and, and like massive refactoring of a mono repo. Like, how do I turn on no implicit any on my TypeScript build if I have zillion lines of TypeScript code? Um, so there's a lot of stuff in scope. Um, mostly, mostly I'm just worried about success. Failure would be easy. I should point out to that end, I've, I am trying to ramp up the Google developer experts, um, which is sort of our first line of, um, trainers and consultants and experts and who, 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 you know, uh, who can help, uh, scale up the support and, and also contribute a lot back to the ecosystem. Not to say that everybody on the internet can't, but, um, those are people who have dedicated more time to do that. Um, so I'm hoping to get uh, a lot of the Google developer experts uh, ramped up on how this stuff works so they can be helpful and diagnose people's issues and help to do customization where needed. So I confess I'm watching some of that, those conversations, and they are very encouraging. Um, but as a guy who's got a zine of other pro- projects going, I'm kind of like, I'm going to wait until they iron it out. Um, but your, your sense is that it's going to be the kind of thing that I'm – like if I have to become a deep expert in Bazel, Bazel, I'm I'm gonna. It's just not something I want to be. I, I I talk to John about this all the time. It's like I don't want to be good at packaging. I don't want to be good at. I don't want to be good at any of these things because um, I can't. Like I'm barely good, if at all, at the things that I focused on. So so um, this is a maybe I'm having a mental breakdown here, but I'm looking for that thing when it's, when I know that it's safe to go even in the water to try it. Am I, are we close there? I mean, I know you're saying wait until it'll come out in the CLI and all that, but is it the kind of thing where I dare try it myself? I think, uh, I think it's a really great thing to at least like sort of have a little bit of firsthand experience with what it's like to do this incremental build thing. So I think it's, I think it's a good idea to, um, at least check out the example repo and, and sort of build it and kick the tires a little bit. Um, can you give me like, a, can you give, give me like the one minute? Here's what happens where you walk in the door, you turn the handle to the right. This is what you're going to experience and bang, you're going to, you're going to be there. Can you give me like that story? Like what's it going to be like if I just want to try this? Yes. That's a, the readme on, on github.com slash Alex Eagle slash angular hyphen basil hyphen example, which is my canonical example repo. It's also from the link from everywhere. The readme on that repo is intended to be exactly that. It's like, hey, look, so you you install, you run your first build, here's how you bring up the dev server, here's how you run the tests. Cool. So that's that's your walkthrough. Um, I think to your other question, like how much how much expertise will I need to build in this tool over time? Um, since we're talking about convergence with what Google does, you can just look at what Google engineers go through. Um, when they join, they have uh, you know they 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 do have a few days ramp up on on you know how to how to operate the build system. I think you probably do in any new job. Um, and then for the most part, most of them don't know about like how the incrementality works behind the scenes. They just run whatever their team does. And so unless you're a build tools engineer, you don't have to go any deeper than that. All right. You convinced me. I'm going to, I'm going to find steal a few hours and try it. Yeah. You should try it now, Ward, while I still have time to answer questions and issues. <laughs> that is the tempting problem. I think we're coming close, but I want to, uh, Alex, what, I mean, you know, we, what do we need to know that we haven't asked or, you know, what do you want from us? I, I guess you want from us to go try it, but I mean, is, is, you know, this is your chance to, to give us that, that, uh, hook or, or say whatever you want to say. Uh, find me some more eager contributors and I'll give them projects. 
yeah, just uh, looking looking for obviously for for good adopters to help give feedback and file the right file the issues and um, and shake out the design problems and then uh, contribution time. That sounds great. Do you have some kind of target date for releasing this? So yeah, so Angular six, which is targeted for like late March ish, ngconf ish, um, is going to have ABC as one of the two options for for building libraries. So that's kind of the that's the that's the firmest date I have for when some set of people would use Bazel. So obviously, library developers are I think more sophisticated set of developers on on the whole, um, or at least you know they're they're exposed to more of these questions about like how do I ship the thing so that everybody else can consume it. We have this Angular package format where we say, hey, the thing you put on npm has to have like several different flavors of JavaScript in it, and they have to be in just this way so that all the downstream tools can work. Uh, so that's where we're going to land first. Um, I think. Uh, yeah, I don't think there's going to be any firm date when, like, an enterprise customer um, is 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 happier than than now. Like, we're going to just keep adding features. We need to add code splitting. Um, right now, not all of the rules work on Windows. I need to go fix that in the next couple of weeks. Um, and then, uh, I don't I don't have a date when the Angular CLI might switch to Bazel as the default. I think we haven't even really done serious design thinking for that yet. We'll probably do that after Angular six ships. But it'll be an option with with six. With six ships, we'll have an option to 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 run it that way. Actually, five has five had support for Bazel. Like the at Angular slash Bazel package has been in there since Angular v five. Um, so it's just a question of expanding the support to cover more use cases. Uh huh. It's been a soft launch. Yeah, well, those can be very successful, <laughs> as opposed to the big oh no. So one other thing that I'm wondering about, and this is something that comes up periodically when I talk about Angular with people, is um, not everybody is completely bought into TypeScript. And so, you know, you're talking about, hey, you know, you just put in a rule for TypeScript and it compiles. Uh, what about things like ES6? Is this going to make it easier for people to write Angular apps with ES6 or ES5? Or are there going to be, you know, are, are there going to be other impediments to that that are still going to exist? So we're improving the story of writing Angular apps in JavaScript. Um, and we're also improving the story of writing Angular apps that you just drop on the page. You have things like Angular Elements um, and this IV project, which is a replacement for Angular's renderer, which is this internal bit, but it allows you to, to um, potentially write apps without the without the compiler. Um, that stuff is is uh, is sort of orthogonal to ABC in the sense that for you know, no matter what build tool you use. Um, Angular had this uh, had had some tie-ins to TypeScript that we'd like to knock out. Um, I do think that uh, I at the very minimum we should we should make sure that there are good rules out there to use Bazel to build an Angular app that's pure JavaScript. Obviously, you still need some some you don't need the TypeScript compiler in your toolchain, but you do need some other tools in the toolchain. Um, you know, in, I I suppose that you could write an Angular app in pure JavaScript and have very little build tooling, and so you don't really have the problem I'm describing where your development turnaround is slow. Um, but uh, there's no reason that that we couldn't use the Bazel toolchain for that. So I think we, sh we should at least make sure that such a thing exists. Maybe it should be part of our canonical example. I'm not sure if the Angular team would, you know, would own the support for that. Um, but there may, not, there may just not be that much to do. Does that, that make sense, sense to me? Yeah, I think, I think we want to we both make it easier to just like do the simple thing, drop a script tag on the page and my HTML lights up like it did with AngularJS. And at the same time, support the enterprise use case of, yeah, I want TypeScript, I want all the comp compilation benefits, and I don't want to wait 20 minutes for every build. 
Very cool. I'm amazed that it's just you and one other person. <laughs> yeah, my family's looking forward to when this thing is more shipped. Aw. <laughs> oh, they're okay. They're cute. I'll go see them tonight. <laughs> All right, well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Are you ready to master Angular? Oasis Digital offers Angular Bootcamp, a three-day intense workshop class for individuals or teams. They cover Angular 4 and 2 and focus on the skills and knowledge you need for complex, data-rich applications. They also still offer AngularJS for teams supporting older projects. Bring them to your site or send developers to them in St. Louis, San Francisco, New York, D.C., and other cities, and online at angularbootcamp.com. Uh, Ward, do you have some picks for us? Well, I, I, I the only, not really, but the one thing I do have is, of course, this whole time I've had this running through my head, uh, which is um, the Steve Miller bands fly like an eagle. So uh, that's my pick. <laughs> <laughs> the song stuck in Ward's awesome. head. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> All right, Alyssa, do you have some picks for us? Uh, just one. I've been really into like retro photos lately, uh, printing. And so I have this impossible project, um, piece of equipment. It's like a old school Polaroid, but it has a tower on top of it. And, uh, you put your phone on it and it like prints Polaroids from your phone, like from pictures you have on your phone. So I've just been really enjoying that. So it's called the impossible project. If you're like a Polaroid fan like myself. So yeah, that is my pick. Awesome. Joe, what are your picks? All right, so I got two picks, one of which is not my own. John Papa had to drop off the call, and his pick was The Greatest Showman movie, which I have seen, absolutely love. So on his behalf, I'm going to pick the movie The Greatest Showman. Oh, my goodness. I've actually was listening to the soundtrack earlier today. freaking love that movie. Hold on, Ward. So good. You and I cannot agree on a movie. That's not okay. (laughs) Well, I I know that's it. You know, you're right, like a stopwatch twice a day. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's funny. Uh, Which of us is the blind squirrel that did actually find a nut? Which of of us is that? (laughs) (laughs) You've heard that scene, right? I don't, I think you're losing your gourd, man. (laughs) (laughs) Even a blind squirrel finds a nut now and then? Yeah, I thought it was a picnic, but whatever. But yes, yes, in an event, Joe, this is one of those rarities, and I think we should really like stop and <laughs> savor the moment. Savor the moment. Uh, awesome. Okay, my other pick uh, is going to be a role-playing game just recently came out called Kids on Bikes. So I've lately got been able to get back into playing role-playing games. My kids are old enough that I can play with them. And I'm doing a little bit with some of my peers as well, playing some Dungeons & Dragons. But for fun, my daughter, who is way into uh, Stranger Things, I saw this role-playing game on Kickstarter that I backed. It's called Kids on Bikes, and the it's a role-playing game to role-play through as a game. All those movies about the kids in a small town and something weird happens and it's the kids that are figuring everything out and solving the problems like et stranger things um i think it was eight millimeter was another one whatever and what i really 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 liked about it is as a role-playing game goes it was very unique and very novel because it was far more of a collaborative storytelling game than it was your typical role-playing game in that there wasn't you don't start out with an idea of 
what's going to happen in a conflict and an enemy and a monster. Instead, both the players and the game master collaboratively collaboratively work together answering questions and the game kind of guides you through this and as the game master you have to be a little bit more on your toes maybe than in other games but uh, the players are oftentimes the one who come up ones who come up with the next element so for example in the game i played with my daughter and two of her teenage friends my daughter's 15 uh they encountered the main uh protagonist the the 11 if you have if you will of stranger things but I didn't even know what it was going to be. So I actually am asking one of the characters who's in the scene saying, you turn around and you see something you never thought you had seen. What is it? And we just happened to have my rabbit uh, in the house. And he saw the rabbit. And he says, I see a rabbit. And that became the, <laughs> the 11, the, straight, the super powered <laughs> uh, character that they had to protect was a large rabbit. So anyway, super please fun game. Tell me somebody general... said sharp pointy teeth. Please, please. <laughs> <laughs> I believe I may have I may have said that, but I don't know that my uh, daughter and her friends got it. I'm not sure if they've seen uh, Holy Grail. But if you like role playing games and you're looking for something even more interesting on the storytelling front, this game by far takes that to a, a level that I have never seen before in a role playing game. And I'm I'm kind of into checking out kind of the oddball What's the, uh, what's the suggestion of number of players for it? Um, you know, I would say that it plays, based on my one experience with three players, I would say it would play pretty well up to five or six. Beyond that, I think it's just just like your typical three to five is probably ideal. Okay. Two okay. seems like it's not enough players. And that's with um, that's not including like the DM type the role person? Yeah. Okay. So with the GM, I would say the minimum, the best, that I, I think it's ideal to be four to six total people. Okay, very cool. Uh, I think it could play with three, but two would be probably way too little. Total people. There we go. Those are my picks. So um, The Greatest Showman reminded me of something and uh, that John is doing. He, start, he started a five things series, uh, video series, which is a, a, you know, you get in there and you, you try and get teased into some technology for you know, in a short period of time on a fun video with uh, that's combination of goofy and substantive. And um, uh, he and I did one on RxJS and we've got the link. We'll have a link in the show notes. And, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not often amused by myself, but I thought uh, we were pretty good. So uh, check it out. Awesome. He also posted another um, pick, which is a video, I think, uh, but it's deploy a node app to Azure in a single command. He posted a Twitter link, so I'm not exactly sure what it is. But uh, we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well if you're looking at ways to deploy uh, node to Azure. Um, I'm going to jump in here with a couple of picks as well. Um, so I'm here at Developer Week, uh, which is a conference in Oakland. It's been pretty fun. Um, it's it. I also just really enjoy coming out to the Bay Area. Um, I mean, it's a little more expensive than it is back home, but it's nice just to get away. So I'm going to pick that as well. And then the last thing that I'm going to pick last week, I was at NG Atlanta and it was just a terrific conference. And I got to see Alyssa and uh, Amy from um, JavaScript Jabber and John from this show. And all in all, it was just a really, really terrific experience. So um, hopefully they do it again next year. And if you get a chance to go, go. It was it was terrific. Um, Alex, what are your picks? All right, I got one. So um, 
I think my, you know, I was, I was looking at this cherry red Tesla Roadster, but now it seems like it's, uh, we're way out of reach. So did you actually watch the, did you watch the launch? That was like oh, yeah, the we coolest were, we, thing we, ever. Yeah. We turned one of the big TVs in the Angular Cube into a launch party. It was pretty cool. <laughs> so, uh, no, so my pick is I like to make electronic music. Um, and, uh, but I'm always frustrated to use a computer to do it because I just get tired of computers, you know, all day. They just torture me. So I love these little handheld devices called pocket operators from this company, Teenage Engineering. Um, and it's basically like a little 16 channel, 16 step, um, sequencer that looks like a retro weird video game. And then you actually can make like some pretty cool music on it. Um, so I'll put a, I'll put a link to that in the show notes too. Wow. Hey, it never might, can it do auto tune? I'm not the, I haven't seen a module to do that, oh, no. oh, but you can chain oh. them together so you can get like a, like a bass and a rhythm and a like melody instrument and you can like jam out on three of them at a time. It's pretty cool. Okay. Cause I'm looking for something to auto tune this, this, uh, so we can do a whole session here with auto tune the adventures in Angular. But, uh, <laughs> I, so I thought maybe you would know. All right. No, I, I just said you could auto tune it in post. Like if Charles has a lot of extra time this week, he can just auto tune some sections of this recording. So, so what do you make with that? I mean, what kind of music do you like to make with that stuff? I mean, it's it's like uh, people might describe it as techno. I like um, sort of like trance house, uh, intelligent dance music, kind of like beep beep boop music. That's my particular style. You call that in, that's intelligence dance? Intelligent dance? That's, that's a that's a that's a genre that's out there. You can you can Google that he's, term. You'll find. So he's there. not making that up, but the beep beep boop that one was made up. <laughs> Beep beep boop is a more layman's term for that kind of music. Yeah. <laughs> and and, and it, it has it has intelligence is something that I just I have a hard time associating with that. It's but that's just, okay. It's, it's it's kind of it's kind of cranial. It has like a lot of polyrhythms, and it just like you know tickles your brain. I see. Good programming music too. All right. Well, Alex, if people want to uh, follow this particular project, or you know maybe you're posting stuff to Twitter. Or uh, blog or something like that. Where, where do they go get information? So the, 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 the main short link is g.co slash ng slash abc. That's your, that's your one pager and I have links on there to everything else. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming and talking through this with us. I think as we go forward, it's going to be more and more important to, I mean, at least understand what the tooling is doing for you, even if you don't have to be an expert in how it all works. So, yep. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.